get full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. Rebel Force Radio presents Star Wars Influences. You've taken your first step into a larger world. All right, and welcome back to Star Wars Influences. It's RFR's look at everything that inspired and contributed to the vision of Star Wars as we see it on the silver screen, along with the positive influence it has on fans worldwide. Joining me this month and every month is our friend, old school RFR bud, noticed, (laughs) I always try to throw in something different every time, noted British (laughs) film veteran and Star Wars artist Paul Bateman. Hello, everybody. Hello, Paul. Thank you. It's hey. good to be back, man. It's always good. Good to have I you back. Know, I never know if it's going to be like a week, a day, a month, a year, you know? <laughs> but when it happens, it's fabulous. So. Yeah, man. Well, so this good. is, you know, this is the first month of 2018, and so uh, so far we're, we're totally on schedule for this year, so uh, we, have yeah. not, we have not fallen behind. We'll, we'll try as hard as we can to make this a, a regular monthly occurrence. It just makes me feel like a slacker because the speed to get these movies out at, you know? It is happening think, fast. Like, yeah. Blink and there's another movie. I mean, like, Han Solo's like three months away, right? Uh, yeah, about uh, wow. four or, or so. About four, four months, three. yeah. Oh, he just seems to be saying goodbye to one and another one's around the corner. Well, I am uh, firmly uh, planted in uh, the realm of The Last Jedi with it still in theaters right now. And I think it's uh, worthy a little bit of exploration here on... Star Wars influences to talk about some of the art design that we see in the film and some of the concept art that is featured in the new book, The Art of Star Wars, The Last Jedi, written Absolutely. by Phil Zostak. Zostak? So, yeah, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Forward by Ryan Johnson. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure either, but I think I've seen Phil on Twitter just recently. So um, really interesting stuff. And uh, I have a copy of the book. And, Paul, you have a copy of it, right? Sure do, yeah. And uh, It's, it's going to be like Jack and Ori or Reading Rainbow or something, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Now, I understand this is an audio-based podcast, and we're going to be talking about some very <laughs> visual things. So we'll do yeah. our best to uh, describe what we're actually seeing. It'll, but, uh, it'll, it'll just be like me kind of trying to describe something to a director down the phone at, like, 4 in the morning, you know. No, not like that, like this, you know. All right, so listeners have a Full pot of black coffee handy as we're going to be uh, going on a late night phone call, early morning phone call with Paul Beeman. But, um, <laughs> and if you do have a copy of the book, check it out while we're talking about it. But let's start off at the very beginning of the book. It, it begins with some concept art that was excluded from the art of The Force Awakens, and that is the death of Han Solo. I yeah. guess they didn't want to include it in the book for fear that... That would get out and become a big, big time spoiler. But we do have a, a few pages of images, concept artwork from that sequence. Um, mm. One of it, the one where Han is falling backwards off the platform with Kylo there, a masked version of Kylo with a different, mm. different, very different looking mask. I love all the stuff that one of the things that's really great about this book, if you haven't picked it up, is is the the amount of kind of new information that's in here that you don't traditionally get with an art of book for stores. You know, it can be it can be a little dry and kind of procedural to read. You know, we did this and then we did that. 
but but it, it's interesting because they kind of pick up on sort of story elements that have been totally abandoned that haven't been discussed really anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So, all, well, at least not thoroughly. And there's a lot of stuff in here about the um, the original kind of proto concept for Kylo was just a character called the Jedi Killer. And, uh, and you know, in the, in the early days, it wasn't even clear, I think, who he was. All, all, all that was clear was he was somebody that Luke taught and, and his appearance was basically out of a desire to annoy Luke Skywalker. Uh-huh. So I loved, loved all that. The idea he was dressing like Vader just to annoy his old master, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure that's really kind of Kylo's motives. Is it? It's, it's kind of more an admiration for his grandfather or at least his understanding of his grandfather. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that these concepts are basically just uh, an apprentice trying to irritate Luke. Which <laughs> 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 that was cool. But there's but, there's all kinds of stuff in here. There's like on on page twenty, there's there's like a, an image that is is a straight lift from one of Ralph's early concepts for uh, a Bespin fight, and there, there are image after image where I'm just kind of seeing where they've pulled from Ralph's paintings, as you'd expect. But they've been quite literal about it, quite a lot of it, you know. Yeah, I see uh, the uh, Bespin design aesthetic mm. sort of there, and yeah, then, yeah. like that catwalk picture you're talking mm. about. But as we get um, a little bit deeper into the book, here's some really interesting revelations is some of the concept art in this book was actually created for George Lucas. Yeah. yeah. As he was, he was developing concepts for episode seven before he sold Lucasfilm to Disney. Yeah. And some of this stuff, it's uh, some Doug Chang artwork among others. Uh Yeah. And uh, it's specifically of the Jedi temple on what Uh would become the planet Octu, mm. and uh, it's some really interesting stuff. And George signed off on some of these ideas. Mm. One of which is a floating rock dome. Mm. It's this giant—I mean, like huge boulder up on top of a cliff, yeah. with a rock trail leaving leading up to it. And it looks like the upper hemisphere of this rounded boulder type mm. shape it's it's floating above the other one yeah so it's, it's almost like i i kind of got that for me i thought that worked on a few levels because i was looking at it kind of thinking well yeah that's nice because it shows luke's power because like half the building is clearly being supported by the force you know which i thought was a really <laughs> was a cool idea but at the same time i looked at it and it almost looks like the death star you know kind of it's yep. divided down the middle like a trench mm-hmm. you know so there's a bit of that too but what's nice is to sort of see how um, on the nose George thought some of these concepts were, and they're much less primitive than the stuff that you see on Act Two. There's a there's a temple that looks very kind of Tibetan or something. It's almost like a gold bell uh, sitting on a mountain top that has a real kind of feel of Jabba's palace and that kind of thing too. It actually has a lot to, a lot of similarities with some of the work that Doug Chang did for um, uh, his own personal uh, project, Robota. Where he did a lot of a lot of towers that was just like this. He's he's, he's into the kind of bell shape quite a lot, mm-hmm. like Ralph was. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's cool to to sort of see where they immediately went with it. I mean, I I had all kinds of. I'm sure you were the same, Jimmy. We were speculating about where they might go with Luke when we finally saw him, and um, I I always think kind of assumed that they'd find him back on Tatooine, just purely because that whole thing about I'm never coming back here again, you know, and 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 all that that kind of general attitude of. Uh, not not wanting to be a part of it, I was assumed that you know that might be uh, in the same way that it was a strange thing for for them to do with the 
uh, with the babies, you know, baby Luke and all that, you, you think it would be a strange thing for him to kind of go back to somewhere that was the focus of so much action for a long time. But that would make it kind of, you know, the interesting choice, you know, kind of going back to the place that he came from. And but uh, so I was surprised to find out he was he was going to end up on Act Two, but it, it works the same, I think. You know, but it kind of feels to me like maybe they weren't even sure where he was going to be at one point, were they? Like looking at some of these designs, the, the terrains all over the place. You've got like mountains and oceans and, you know, desert and all kinds of stuff. In fact, a couple of pictures actually look like Tatooine because they've got the twin suns and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they yeah. say What's... that it was just added there just to make it yeah. feel like Star Wars. They weren't yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. And they were sort of pitching ideas, too, mm. via concept art. A lot of people are thinking that this book, The Art of the Last Jedi, is kind of a, a what-if book, you know? Like, yeah. oh, why, why didn't they do that? Why didn't they go after mm. that? And you know what? A lot of it, it doesn't have anything to do with the script or no, anything like that. Have... It's just concept yeah. artists sort of pitching mm. ideas, oh, yeah. uh, more or less. Don't you think that's yeah, uh, what's happening for definite. there? For definite. I mean, what's, what's, what's difficult for them, I think, is that, that they've... They have to kind of get that Star Wars feel across and yet expand what that Star Wars feel is, you know. And I kind of feel like, you know, Ralph, I remember chatting to him about Yoda's home and stuff like that and uh, talking about, um, you know, how some of his earlier concepts for for Yoda's house, because he did so many different versions of it and stuff. Uh, I remember talking to him how they could maybe be utilized in different ways for different buildings and things like that. And he was like, you know, not a... uh, not a difficult person at all, and very uh, open-minded about all kinds of design, and very kind of you know keen on stuff. But when it came to kind of the Star Wars stuff, he had a, he clearly had a very clear idea of of what worked as Star Wars stuff and what didn't. And and uh, I think in his own head, I think Ralph had a very kind of uh, tight um, line of you know I, I'm not going to go there. And uh, you know among those things were stuff that were just to him were just too earthly. So a lot of the stuff in this that's uh, that's to do with the um, jumping ahead slightly, but with the caretakers and stuff like that it was so literally, you know, nun habits and, and ordinary little carts and uh, fishing trolleys and stuff like that, that I don't think it's somewhere that Ralph would have gone, mm. you know, like in terms of design. Um, but, um, you know, they've got, to, they've got to push it a bit and you can't do the same thing over and over again. No. And, and there, there can there, only a, be one Ralph McQuarrie, let's face it. Yeah, but I mean, he is the, he is the language of stuff. I mean, what's really interesting to me is that, that, you know, you quite often get this, you know, kind of what's communicated in these books now is like what is Star Wars design. And I think Ralph did have a fairly kind of specific idea of what was and what wasn't. Mm. And obviously it wasn't just down to him. There were more designers than, than Ralph involved. And then obviously this, the practicality of making things. But uh, I think I think... You know, the things that we now associate with Star Wars, you know, commonly, like moisture apparatus everywhere on lots of different planets. There's a, there's a bunch of different moisture apparatus going to turn up in uh, in the Han Solo movie and stuff. You know, they, they I think in in, in, uh, in uh, Ralph's mind, there's no way you'd see those anywhere but Tatooine. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they were personally designed for that planet. But you could see that George might have gone there. You know, George, although he didn't, you know, we didn't see apparatus anywhere but Tatooine in any of George, George's movies. Um, but, um, you know, but I think, I think, uh, I think given time, he might, he might have been, uh, accepting of that idea as just something that's, you know, and, and, uh, a cross planetary technology that gets about, I mean, it makes sense, you know, but I think for Ralph, I, th- I think, uh, the abundance of evaporators would probably have confused him, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally get what Ralph was thinking because for me, the moisture evaporators represented 
how bleak the situation was on Tatooine specifically. How <laughs> yeah. the twin suns completely dried out the planet. Any sort of natural water resource had been completely evaporated or used up a long, long time ago. And the mm. only way they could get any water on this planet was uh, they were so desperate. They had to develop technology that mm. was able to pull the water, whatever little of it exists, up in the sky. And that's what made Luke Skywalker valuable as a farmer. They weren't growing crops there. They were harvesting water from the sky. So, I mean, it's like the moisture evaporator is essential to the planet of Tatooine. So when you see it showing up on, like, lush green planets with huge bodies of water, like the one that was at the beginning of Rogue One. Yeah. And mm. you see those moisture evaporators everywhere. You're like, why? Why, they probably have, like, just, you know, a, a water reservoir and, <laughs> and plumbing. They don't think need the evaporator. No, well, that was my, I mean, that was my first read. That's the thing with this stuff is, like, what's your first read, you know? My first read was the same. was like, well, wait, what? It looks really lush and wet. Mm -hmm. yeah, but I think the idea, the way it was justified, I think, in the in the, uh, in the Art of Rogue One was that, that there were a lot of pollutants or a lot of, you know, problems with the with the water on the surface, and so you had to kind of get down deep to get the good stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that that was the logic. But I mean, of course, when you look at that, that's not that's not you know immediately obvious to you. So, well, it makes it know. Star Warsy, so it's good. For, yeah, I don't. Yeah. You know, I'm not arguing. It's a trade off, it's... isn't it? It's a trade off. I mean, right. you know, when you look at the comic books for the last forty years, like the evaporators have been everywhere. <laughs> you know, but it's just unusual for the movies, isn't it? You know, you kind of go, all right, that's that's new. Okay, you know. But uh, yeah, it, it's 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 a constant kind of juggling act, I think, between uh, the familiar and the new. And uh, yeah, I don't know. But there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in this, and it's interesting to sort of see the 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 path that they took with the Jedi temples on uh, Act Two, and the fact that it might have actually been somewhere much more kind of magnificent and ginormous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, these enormous, great big temples that look like you know bigger than the pyramids or something, and uh, jutting out of the the ocean, you know. So that, that stuff was really interesting, and I would have liked to have seen that. I think that's a really interesting concept, the idea that maybe you know, Luke could have been exploring these ginormous temples. That I could kind of see as making a lot of sense for why um, he'd been there for sort of you know, 30 or 40 years. You know, it, it's strange how this visual stuff can, can inform your experience, you know, where you look at it and you just immediately kind of go, all right, you know, he's been there for 40 years because he's been in that building for 40 years. It's that big, you know. Whereas the island itself, you kind of feel like you could probably get the measure of it in a week, you know? <laughs> Don't you well, think? The yeah. island itself, the the actual temple exterior mm. is the natural architecture of the island itself. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. Uh, mm. You never really see, like, what is the temple, you know? The temple just seems to be within... The, mm. the 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 mountain itself. Yeah, maybe it's kind of buried down deep inside or something. And so yeah. you know, it's it's not like you know Jedi Temple with like a big flashing neon light sign. No. It's very primitive, very <laughs> primitive. But I suppose that makes sense too. You know, it all depends on how old is it supposed to be. Like kind of, I don't remember how many thousand years they said it was. Like a, well, like hundred thousand years old or something in, like in, that. In Star Wars literature over the years, it was always 
for a thousand thousand years. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, a yeah. thousand thousand. So however many thousand that is. Yeah. What's kind of weird for me is that knowing that a lot of the a lot of the area that they filmed um, Act Two that wasn't on the on the um, on Skellig Michael was was all shot shot in um, Donegal and uh, around the coast of Donegal. And my mum is from Derry and she used to cycle like the around the coast of Donegal. So mm-hmm. this whole area was really familiar to my mum as a kid. It was where she used to take a bike out, you know. Sure, down on so, the, so like a southwest shore of... And uh, north, northwest, so they jump about quite a bit. There's a little bit shot on the, on the, on the south coast and there's a little bit shot, shot up north as well. So it it's jumps about a bit for... I think the southwest stuff was for when he's fishing and all that, that bit. Got it. So, Got jumping it. around and that's a practical a, stunt too that wasn't done oh you know. not amazing yeah. it's just insane i hope that i hope the behind the scenes footage on the on the blu-ray shows that i'd love to see the the nutter that did that <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean it's it's funny sometimes when you're on set and you see stunties especially the old the old boys that are uh you know hard as nails and uh obviously insurance is a is a is a risky thing so people don't muck about on film sets generally but the stunties do tend to kind of, you know, volunteer for the dangerous gig- gigs because they know they'll get a cash like, handout if if they have an injury. or <laughs> So they do sometimes tend to behave like lemmings, you know, like, yeah, throw, throw, throw me at it, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I imagine they were queuing up for like, yeah, let me let me be the first one to uh, jump out on a 200-foot fishing rod, you know, because uh, I'm sure that would be a good bonus. But, uh... <laughs> good bonus. And then if you slip up, it'll be a, vac- yeah, right. a, a nice it's, long vacation as week well. Off. Yeah, At I love least. all these pictures of of uh, Luke's X-wing all submerged in the water. It, it says it says in the book that the um, that Luke set fire to his X-wing before he before he turfed it in the sea. And you kind of think, talk about overkill. You know, <laughs> he was really determined not to go anywhere, wasn't he? You know? It says that in the book here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says it says he torched torched the he torched the X-wing before he put it in the water. Oh, it says so, it was set alight before it sank. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, talk about he kicking a man way down. He torched it. It's crazy, isn't it? That's uh, wow, and that's the Doug Chang art. Mm. I like all the stuff it's talking about, like quite a lot with the the use of materials. You know, that, that's always really interesting to me. They were talking about a lot of the fabrics and stuff that they use for Luke's clothing was meant to have a very kind of British feel. So it's a lot of loose, you know, uh, woolen garments and and just kind of uh, scruffy looking hide. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like dressed like an Irish farmer or something, you know. Yeah, or yeah. Irish fisherman. They definitely yeah. took into account, you know, the the mm. natural environment of the uh, shooting location when it came to, uh, mm. you know, just about everything here. <laughs> um, yeah. And and like I said, everything kept real primitive. Uh, the Jedi Tree Library. Mm. Um, and that looks like they were going to do something far more formal, weren't they? They were just going to do like an ordinary building. So I don't think the tree, yeah. it looks like the tree wasn't their first thought. So it's nice that they went off at a tangent there because you kind of feel like that could have been really boring, couldn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could have could have not had that mystical aspect. It could have just been a little round hut, you know? Yeah, that's so. what they have with windows and everything. It looks just mm-hmm. like a building on Naboo or something in yeah. some of the concept art. But what I notice here a lot with the book is how the Jedi Tree Library its shape is reminiscent of the Rebel Alliance symbol. Yeah, yeah, I think they mention that, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that association, you know. I mean, because we know we have we have all these movies to to hang off 
you know, our understanding of what all these symbols mean and stuff. But uh, I mean, you know, the Jedi were around for a lot longer than the uh, than the um, rebellion. Mm-hmm. And, but I guess, I guess, you know, it, I guess the inference is, is that the rebellion was kind of ripping off its, you know, iconography from from the Jedi rather than the other way around. But it's it's yeah, it's weird that they would see the Jedi as a symbol of rebelliousness. You know, right? I guess right. That's, and is also, that a message is trying to tell. I don't know. And it's considering in- what we know now about the birth of the rebellion with. Mm. Clone Wars and Revenge of the Sith and Rogue One and all. I mean, the Jedi really had very little to do with the formation of the Rebellion. Mm. Yeah. You know. Um, Didn't you see the, did you read the little bit as well where it's talking about the at the start of the Jedi that there was no light or dark side in in the ancient times that basically it wasn't defined that way? Or at least that's their that's their interpretation so that the, the good and the bad coexisted and they weren't separated like they are in this age, you know, that the, it wasn't spoken about as a light side and a dark side, a Sith and a Jedi. It was just the force. Right. And that's, and that's where Luke's kind of, you know, he's dovetailing back to the earliest kind of point of, of uh, Jedi law where it basically, they weren't that, you know, separate, they didn't separate things out. It was one and the same, you know? Yeah. The but, yin and the uh, yang essentially. Mm. Do you think that you know, there's a little segment that's just all about the the Jedi literature and and it's talking about the the um, uh, the the pool rock with the the picture of the what do they call it the pro the not the proto it was the the first Jedi or the first oh Jedi the prime prime, prime yeah. Jedi yeah do you, do you think that looks like Snoke well somebody you... did bring that up um, mm. yeah yeah I, I guess a little bit but it looks like there's some sort of headpiece there or mm. you know it doesn't i mean i guess yeah, it could it, i guess it could mm. look like snoke but uh his sword looks like it's dark one side and light the other as well i noticed which i thought was an interesting idea that yeah. not just the figure is divided it's like he's got a black lightsaber and a white lightsaber but the thing i like about all this is is it's almost like zoroastrian you know like like angelic law and they had they have a load of kind of mythology that's all about like giants and the Nephilim and all that. And all the fallen angels are basically like these humongous, great big characters. And Snoke kind of feels, you know, fits that kind of archetype like a giant, otherworldly kind of character. And there is some kind of suggestion that maybe he's from a realm that's really, really like much further out than we've gone so far in the Star Wars universe. So I find that really interesting. That really kind of feels like a. A mythological thing, but we—I mean, we don't know now. But maybe JJ will go there in in nine and explain where he came from, or at least you know he'll he'll have an opinion about it, even if it's not in the movie. I think. Well, you know considering he played such a large hand in creating Snoke, mm. you'd believe he'd want to kind of provide some sort of information yeah. about the guy. Well, I just think it would be fun, wouldn't you? I mean, a lot of people are kind of saying they should this or they shouldn't that. And I just think, for me, a lot of it comes down to it would be fun and it would be interesting and it might, you know, it might just make something richer, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't have expectations in that way, but I think it would be it would be really interesting. I'm really curious about him. You know, I think they did a good enough job of creating him as a character that you kind of think he's interesting. You know, I mean, I think like in The Last Jedi, he felt like a very real uh, person to me, which is a, a, do you know, it's weird, you know, when they do something really right in Star Wars, it's so easy to just kind of sail past it because there's so much going on and there's, there's always a new scene to see. And, uh, I think it's very easy to just, you know, pass by Snoke and kind of go, Oh yeah, that's great. You know, but when you really kind of stop it for a minute and look at, at Snoke, how he looks and in the performance and everything, 
I find him really, really fascinating. I think his the performance is really interesting. He doesn't feel like Andy Serkis. Did you did you read the little piece that it was it was talking about? Um, Andy Serkis actually wore the costume on set. And stuff. No, that's, I didn't that's know that. No, I didn't they, see they, that. Yeah. They made him a little pair of kind of Turkish style slippers with gold thread <laughs> and all that. And and he had a uh, like a body stand in. who was obviously a big guy, like yeah. a you know seven or eight footer that that, that you know was closer to Snoke's actual size. And I, I guess that was all to get um, good reference to the fabric and stuff in situ but uh but that that surprised me because i thought you know i don't think we've seen any behind the scenes shots of anybody actually in the gear you know i mean when you think about the the how well documented the old styles movies were and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh and the prequels too you know the fact that they always had kind of you know 10 photographers around doing stuff on every stage and with a lot of this stuff you feel as though it's it's, it's nowhere near as well documented you know well, be nice i think it, it's probably even better documented than you think they're just very um, stingy about the stuff that they release do you know, do you know what jimmy it's it's not i mean i i know because i used to you know have a little bit to do with the image department i know they had a they definitely had a larger team of photographers mm-hmm. like so back Back when they were working on the prequels, they had a team of 10. And I know during The Force Awakens, they I think they were working with a staff of about three or four. So, you know, which mm. globally, that's a trick. And, you know, and half of those people are not going to be taking photographs. They're going to be organizing and uploading and stuff right, like that. Right. So, so there's definitely a lot less photography happening. But well, I think know. that comes down to maybe priorities. And George, yeah, George yeah. Lucas is the type of guy mm-hmm. who famously has the sort of yeah. mind of a documentarian. And it seems yeah. only natural that he would want to make somebody chronicling all that stuff with video yeah. cameras a priority. And security as well, I guess, now is more of an issue. Ah, I suppose, yeah, about, about yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, back in the 70s, I mean, that somebody had to physically come in and steal the film or those prints, you know, whereas now, of course, it's just like, upload it from a surfer and it's they're gone aren't they so several years ago speaking of this this subject and then we'll get back to the art of uh, the last jedi <laughs> but several years ago kyle kyle newman mm. introduced me to a, a friend of his a guy named spencer susser and spencer mm-hmm. is a filmmaker and uh he had directed a film called hesher with oh yeah i remember that joseph mm-hmm. gordon levitt and Natalie yeah. Portman, another Star Wars connection. But what makes Spencer interesting and why I'm I'm referencing him during this conversation is Spencer was the guy who headed up the documentary crew for at least one of the prequels. I know he did Attack of the Clones. Yeah, so yeah. he was there with the video cameras shooting those wow. Those, uh, remember uh-huh. the web documentaries and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was the one following George around, going to ILM, going to the creature shop, shooting on set, and creating mm. the behind-the-scenes documentaries that you see on the on the DVD nowadays. So, mm. But, yeah, so Spencer went on and to uh, direct major motion pictures after that. Um, mm. But uh, we had him on the show once, and he had some interesting stories to tell about... Uh, Working on those films and being behind the scenes for so many historic moments in Star Wars filmmaking. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll dig up that interview. Uh, yeah, you know, and and, uh, and uh, give it another spin or something. But uh, it'd be cool. Yeah. I, talking talking of uh, video, I was I was one of the things I thought was really interesting was uh, there's a little piece where Ryan Johnson is talking about the beginning of his fandom as a Star Wars fan and and the fact that. 
as a kid you know he he, he was all about the vhs tape mm-hmm. and uh that whole idea of of not being able to um uh, you know, fill the void, you know, between kind of movies with anything else because there wasn't a lot of merchandising around initially and stuff like that. Um, and so he found himself kind of filling the void creatively by, um, you know, making his own stuff. And I think we've had chats about this before, haven't we, Jimmy? We've been talking about being kids and recording our own soundtracks or or drawing our own comics or right. that, that kind of stuff. And yeah. I think there's a lot of creative people that have come into Star Wars just, you know, and it's, it's, it's like they've just got an appetite for more of what they can't get. And now it's kind of like, <laughs> there is so much stuff out. You kind of think, I wonder if there are kids out there who, who come into creativity in the same way, because you know, there's almost, there's always something you can kind of just go out and buy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that fills that void. You can buy comics and books and, you know, uh, animated shows and all that, you know, but back in the seventies, it was kind of like, right, well, that was that then. Well, we'll see you in three years. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, and then it's up to you to fill the void. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got to kind of get creative. And I mean, I know a lot of the guys at Weta, you know, they, when they talk about, um, the, the visual effects company out in New Zealand, they, they always talk about the fact that they were so remote that a lot of them got into creativity because it simply wasn't practical to kind of, order something from America or the UK and, and have it delivered. It's like they'd be waiting for four months for it to show up because there's, you know, in the back of beyond somewhere, you know, and uh, I think so a lot of them got into creativity and making things just p- purely because they couldn't, they couldn't get it any other way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I do wonder how that's impacting on, you know, young kids who are creative or whether it's, whether it's just adding to it because they've got all this stuff to inspire them. It's not just one thing anymore, you know? Yeah. Uh, I used yeah. to be really inspired to make customized action figures. Because right. I'm a Star Wars action figure junkie. Yeah. And there was a period of time where I believe they weren't coming out with the action figures fast enough, nor were they making the characters I wanted them to make. So I decided to get into making my own with, uh, yeah. you know, the the uh, acrylic paint and the sculpting clay and yeah. <laughs> all this, you know, head swapping and all this crazy <laughs> stuff. I've th- you know, there'd be beheaded action figures all over uh-huh. my house and stuff. My, my wife thought I was going insane. And, uh, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun because I was filling the void. You know, I was creating at a time when the creators weren't. And, uh, then as Hasbro really started to crank out, Lots of action figures, many per year of mm. any and every figure you could possibly think of. Well, mm. I lost the desire to continue customizing action figures yeah, because I yeah, figured, yeah. well, you know, it'll come out sooner or later. <laughs> why Why should I have to go through all the trouble? Yeah. So, so well, it's, it's strange. And, and yet, you know, now I think I think that, that adds a real charm to the characters that were so humdrum that you, <laughs> they never got a release. You know, yeah, you think yeah. like. You know, you know, there's no, there's no kid out there going, man, I really want an Aunt Beru figure, you know, on a vintage car bike. <laughs> well, they did maybe, eventually maybe make an Aunt Beru figure, you know. They did actually make one. But was now she on a, things she on a vintage? I don't know if she was on a vintage. Was oh, no, not a vin- not in a vintage time. No, 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 no. Was it, was it Young Beru or was it the Older Beru? They, uh, Young Beru, Older Beru, I, they've made all of them, all the Beru. Are they really? Oh, right, by, yeah. At this point, yeah. But back um, in the vintage days, not so much. And things have mm-hmm. almost come full circle because now here we are in the modern era. And yeah. the, it's it's a very limited amount of action figures coming out nowadays. For for example, um, yeah. you know, the, the character of Holdo 
uh, uh-huh. was was really big in the Last Jedi, and and there's no action figure of her. Uh, really? There's several action figures left unproduced from. The Force Awakens and Rogue One. Don't even get me started. How can it be over a year mm. after that film has come out, and I still don't have a Bodhi Rook action figure? Now I think they actually did make one of his, but it was it was poorly yeah. distributed. But uh, yeah, no sign of uh, of uh, you know. And there's lots of action figure opportunities for uh, the Last Jedi. You know, there were some uh, mm-hmm. cool creatures walking around on that Canto Bike Casino uh, floor there, and uh, they would make some great action figures. Back in the old days, you'd be mm. getting box sets of this stuff and everything. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I guess uh, I guess uh, 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 people and their you know collecting impulsives have uh, slowed down over the last, especially with younger collectors. I, I think Hasbro mm. is now primarily serving an adult community because mm-hmm. uh, little kids you play think? with, yeah, little kids play with video games and electronics like iPods. And when it comes mm-hmm. to toys, you see uh, Lego is still popular among uh, certain kids, but for the most part, yeah. I, I don't think kids really get into action figures anymore. It's a, yeah, it seems like a shame, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. There's a, you know, there's a nice, there's a tactility to that that you kind of think, is uh, important, but then maybe you don't miss it if you've never had it, you know. So, yeah, strange. But they never yeah, there's, put there's... out a, a Leia in her uh, in her Resistance uniform from the Force Awakens. They never put out one of her. Really? You know? Yeah, they put out a god awful one of her in that blue <laughs> gown at the end of the film. I mean, it looks it's one of right. the worst things they've ever mm-hmm. produced. And of course, they made it a black series figure, so you paid extra for it, and it's right. the worst yeah. figure of all time. It's it's strange, you know. I, I kind of, um, I almost feel like a figure can be a figure if you, if that makes sense to you. Like it doesn't need to look just like the actor for me. You know, it's almost like in the same way that you look back at the old Marvel comics and they're just the likenesses are all over the map mm. because they have they have very little uh, photo reference. So sometimes you think. Who is that? Is that is that Luke Skywalker or uh, well, I don't know who it is, you know, because <laughs> you know, muscle bound or or just a totally different face and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And there were me, times like, Carmine Infantino. Yeah, would, that's would, who I was thinking of. He would yeah. he would create R two D two and make like two totally different looking R 2s from yeah. one panel yeah. to the next. <laughs> totally, and but you know, I think I think you look at that and it's part of its charm is the fact that it's bad, you know. <laughs> Yeah. It makes at least it makes it unique, you know. And uh, so for me, I, I'd be just fine with the, the the figures being quite stylized in a way, you know, and like simplistic and primitive. And well, I don't think. Do you think? I mean, you know, obviously you've house, you have boys in the house and stuff. Who's always fans to me? Is is the accuracy more important to them than than that? You know, do you think like it's really important to kids that these figures look exactly like they look in a movie? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. I, yeah. I think that's important to just about any Star Wars collector's accuracy. Yeah. You know, just yeah. look back uh, in 1995 when Hasbro relaunched the action figure line. Well, mm. they, they made these big buffed up. Yeah, that's a different thing, though. Large I mean, size, you know, crazy. And, and people demanded authenticity. <laughs> so they had to go back to the the drawing board after a while. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking more of stuff like, you know, if you look at the Cantina characters and you've got, you know... <laughs> You've got like Hammerhead wearing a gym slip, and <laughs> I don't know what he's wearing, but it's not what he's wearing in the movie. 
you know, it's sort of something very strange. Like he's got a string vest on or something. Right. But it's 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 not screen accurate, but I just didn't care. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it didn't matter to us because it was just mm. such a brief glimpse during the film, and there was so yeah. little yeah. photographic mm-hmm. reference. Mm. You know, you couldn't just pull up pictures of the the characters yeah, on the online. internet you, yeah, you, yeah, if yeah. you were lucky you got kind of a faded looking trading card with some gum <laughs> and that was the best you were gonna get kid yeah so it's scary isn't it? it's scary no freeze framing yeah. no string grabs none of that stuff was going on yeah, so yeah. so it was more open to interpretation anyway because mm. we just couldn't piece together from our memories exactly what these things look like for a time for a yeah. time but let's get back to the um yeah man, that's, of, that's uh, the, the last jedi so we were talking about the uh the jedi temple on octu mm. and uh that mosaic of the prime jedi and you really get a nice glimpse of it here in the book uh yeah, yeah it's yeah. only briefly seen in the movie and it doesn't get any sort of close-up hero moments so uh that's kind of nice to just there was, be able a, there to was see some it. Let's see if I can find it. There's a little moment that I think we skipped by. You know what uh, I noticed with this book, though, just right off the bat, is that hmm. it, it appears like everything just, it, it was almost like it, the, the evolutionary process for a lot of the things in here, like the creatures hmm. and the wardrobe, the porg, etc. It was. It doesn't <laughs> look like there were any second drafts. It almost appears like everything was first draft yeah. and it was just like, okay, that looks good. You know? Um, yeah. The... Well, I mean, that that is an issue, Jimmy. I mean, like more and more now you find that, you know, I mean, because time is so, is so, you know, it's so rare that you get time to develop things in the way that they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the tools have gotten quicker. I mean, I, I notice more and more when, um, when a tool dictates a design, you know, I quite often because you know you you you'll turn up in an art department and they'll say we need six concept paintings and by the end of the day and they're not just mood pieces they're like properly they contain the actual design of a ship or a vehicle or a character or whatever and that will be the design you know so traditionally I'd expect like Ralph would spend an age like just doing little thumbnails mm-hmm. and and his finished paintings would take anything between two to four days but that's just those days are gone now you know we we, we rarely get the luxury of doing something like that and if we do it's generally because the, the director is a huge fan of that kind of work and it's not really necessary for the final thing but there is a there is, there is stuff that kind of starts to show for me in the design as you, as you go forward because if you look back at some of uh, Joe and Ralph's earliest designs, they are very, very much about function, and they're not necessarily about appearance all the time. And I feel like a lot of the design work that's coming through in the in the, uh, in the sequel era and a little bit in the in the prequel era is is very graphical. It's about like what looks nice in outline, you know, and what looks nice as you know iconically as a shape. And that's that's a large part of you know the original design process too. In that you know you look at all the fighters, they've got these very distinctive outlines. You can recognise any of them in a blink. Um, but um, that for, for Joe and for Ralph and and uh, Nilo and all those guys, that what definitely wasn't where it ends. And it's not really where it ends now for the designers either, if they've got the time. But um, if you look at some of Ralph's earliest earliest uh, you know ship concepts or Joe's earliest ship concepts. It, there's very much a, there's a lot about structure. It's like how does that fasten to that, and how does that fit in there, and uh, you know how are they manufacturing this, and is it is that the sensible size for this thing? And there's a lot of kind of really practical kind of thought going into you know where do we stash this part of this equipment, and it's very very real world. However, kind of out there it gets, and I feel like a lot of designs now it's very it works in a very graphical filmic sense where it's like what's a nice shape, what's going to be lit well, and what's 
what's going to look pretty, you know, aesthetically. And I mean, film is all about that. But I think Star Wars design for me is very, very much about functionality. And I think there are a lot of designs creeping through where I know Ralph would look at it and kind of go, hang on a minute. Like, how how does that, you know, he, he I think he would have a hard time with some of the more graphical designs. Like, for instance, the, the new Mega Destroyer, I think he would just, he wouldn't get it. Uh, you know, I mean, that's my personal opinion. But just from, you know, the experience that I've had of having chats with Ralph and stuff like that, you know, I think it would, it would, it's, it's, it's very, it's so huge. Mm-hmm. I think, I think he would have a hard time kind of figuring out like, wait, it's just a big flat surface and it's a very basic shape and, you know, I mean, I think once you get in tight to the thing, obviously there's a lot of details, a lot of information kind of going on. But I think the 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 first read, which is you know what it's all about for me as a designer, is it reads is kind of a bit ludicrous, you know, which is weird because you know I'd look at the superstar destroyer in in, in uh, Empire and I was cool with that, you know, and yet that totally that totally dwarfed the the little regular destroyers, sure. you know. But yeah. but uh, but I don't know what it is about that one, but it just it seemed daft to me, you know. I was like, okay, right. You know, big, bigger, biggest. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it's like you've got you've got the the gross kind of metal product of probably three planets in one ship. You know, it's like <laughs> it's, it's I don't know. But, I mean, Star Wars is about more than the real world. It's about exaggeration and about giving you an experience you can't get in the real world. So, well, and they, know, they it, just wanted to give uh, Holdo a big target for when she yeah, punched yeah, it into light speed. So they needed it to be like Death Star that's not a Death Star, didn't they? You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Just to you know, I mean, to present, and also it's kind of interesting that it it pushes aside some of the traditional Star Destroyer design and is more like yeah. just a big wing, you know, like yeah. Uh, and it's the throwback to the whole kind of you know the Indiana Jones stuff and things as well, isn't it? And the their uh, tendency to do all the, you know, the Nazi kind of um, flying wings and that kind of thing. So I get where they're coming from. I get where they're coming from. But uh, it's interesting to see all the little Porg designs that they, you know, that they might have got really colourful. But uh, you know, I think they did the right, made the right decision coming back to something that was quite plain and and very puffin like. You know, with with the Porgs. Yet the design of the Porg doesn't appear to have, like I said, gone through mm. many evolutionary steps. It yeah. seems like the design. Uh-huh. The overall shape was decided on pretty quickly, and then they yeah. experimented around with some colors. And like you, I feel that the uh, sort of neutral brown and white color of the Porg mm. is it was probably their best bet because then it starts yeah. looking like some sort of tropical bird of some sort. Mm. I think the the, tra- the trade off you always have with you know when you're designing a project, Jimmy, is is that we have a thousand things to design and we may not get through them. So it's like what's what's the best approach is it to work this thing to death that we really care about and potentially not get to some other stuff or is it to do something that works uh, but get through everything you know and so there is there are sometimes going to be trade-offs where they've not necessarily you know had the time to develop something properly and and you know but then you know you look at things like the porg and you think how, how many seconds of actual screen time did they get and that's how you know you prioritize what you what your work is you know well that's only getting three seconds so it can really only allow that like you know a couple of days of design you know <laughs> <laughs> right but they have right. such a big but, big team you know you think yeah like. and the but porg... I have to say a lot of the a lot of the artwork in this book is very good i think there's a lot of really nice stuff right? you know one of the things i wasn't too excited about with the force awakens book was the amount of stuff that leaned heavily on on the 3d renders mm-hmm. which is an essential part of the process now i mean there just isn't time to figure out you know i mean like ralph used to figure out 
all the perspective of every single vehicle in a shop, mm-hmm. even if there were like a thousand vehicles, you know, we'd figure out, figure it all out. And, uh, you know, we can still do that now, but it'll take you a while. Whereas, uh, you know, most modern Star Wars concept art that involves starships is, you know, after a certain point, they just make them and, and, uh, you know, render them out low quality renders and paint over them because it's just quicker, you know, but the, the artist in me still looks at it and kind of goes, Oh, I wish that was a proper paint and not just a paint over, you know? Yes. But, but you know, of course, uh, you don't want is. to see any any computer aided artwork. You no. want to see the real thing. <laughs> well, it's all computer aided now. Well, I know yeah. that, but I mean, you want to see something yeah. that was created by hand. But well, it's... there are there are some like you get like a lot of concept artists who do have a very traditional approach, and they will not go near a photograph. You know, but but for a movie, that's just not practical. I mean, you could do that, but you know, it, it always takes longer than sampling stuff. And uh, and in the end, it is about the designs in the movie. It's not about the art of book, you know. So you have to put your ego to one side and kind of go, it's not about whether or not this picture is pretty, you know. <laughs> right. So. Well, I'm looking at a really cool shot here of uh, Luke's Jedi Academy building in flames uh, wow. by the hands of Kylo Ren, body strewn on the uh, on the ground in front of it. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I, I think that the final design looked a little different than this. But Yeah, didn't they, didn't they call it something? Oh, I don't know. It's the, oh, they called it a dojo. Dojo, like, yeah. Oh, that's what they call it in the book, the dojo, Luke's yeah, dojo. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, in, the, uh, in, in this, uh, this piece of concept art, it made me think of something somebody told me earlier this week where mm. they said, you know, you don't see the planet Luke's academy was yeah on. you don't do you no but this no. person was claiming that it's definitely lothal hmm now i don't know where they got that from really but yeah. you do see some like of those you know those those weird mounds that yeah, you know kind but of. i don't know if that's if that's a if that's a building i think that's part of the I think that's part of the compound here, you know. It's yeah, part of I the, think the... it's architectural, yeah, definitely, because there are windows and stuff like that. So they're just drawing us from the same. But again, this is another one of those things where you look at it. It's got a thousand floors. There's only a special 12 pu- <laughs> He's got 12 pupils. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. I think he, I think he had, there was 13. Enormous. 13, yeah. including Kylo. <laughs> An unlucky number yeah. for sure. Because Luke says I took mm-hmm. he took Kylo and 12 other students. Right. Yeah, very biblical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was it's nice. 13, 14, including Luke, 15, including R2. Mm-hmm. I like the way that one thing that I always love in these movies is, is the way the blind are doing it. The, the, uh, for all the hood displays and the computer displays, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it all just feels so right. You know, it's just got the perfect balance between being feeling retro and vintage and kind of grainy and, you know, like it fits in with something that we, we saw in the seventies and yet it's contemporary and slick and, modern and feels like something that's flashier than anything we have you know mm-hmm. so yeah i love all that stuff and it's nice to see all the kind of throwbacks to i always think like whenever i look at these design books there's always a bunch of stuff that that makes me think of um i remember chanting a friend of mine mark gabana who who worked on the prequel trilogy and uh at one point mark said you know would you like to see some of uh, some of the concept work that uh, didn't make it into the art of book so i was obviously i was like yes 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 and I remember looking at it and kind of going, that's really great. And then he'd say like, yeah, George wasn't keen on that, you know, and then, and then go, oh, I don't know about that. And he go, George loved that, you know? So it was like, <laughs> okay. Like George sometimes has, as you know, makes decisions that I wouldn't necessarily always line up with, you know, mm. but that, that's, that to me is really interesting. You know, the way that, 
you know, you can look at these books and one of the exciting things about these books is that you do get to see the stuff that falls by the wayside. And I think that on every project, there are a certain number of designs that are fantastic that don't make the cut for one reason or another in terms of, you know, just being practical to build or um, uh, expensive or they just run out of time or they can't get everybody to agree or whatever, you know. And I think, I think uh, there are loads of designs in this that make me think, yeah, that would have been cool. I like a lot of the proto Kylo fighters and stuff, like more than the finished the finished look. But I can understand why they went with the finished thing, because again, it's about communicating. This guy is a descendant of Darth Vader, and you know they're not necessarily going to go with a design that's the prettiest or the uh, the nicest. They're going to go with the one that says what it needs to say. You know, right, right. Yeah. I think some of the Kylo does, but you know, as I look at this, it, it is a traditional. Tie fighter sort of design, yeah, like an interceptor, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah, just with a different um, mm. cockpit, yeah, more boxy, yeah. yeah, boxy, crossed uh, with Darth Vader's tie and stuff. Kind of a different window there. It's not your traditional mm. tie window that we've seen so often. Even mm. we, we've even seen something similar on the Jedi Star Fighter in the prequels. They had sort of a tie fighter window uh, front windshield. Mm. You know, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. The ones in uh, Revenge of the Sith that Anakin yeah. and uh, yeah. Obi Wan are flying at the beginning—they have a Tie Fighter sort of looking front window mm. uh, windshield. Mm. Um, there's an interesting design here of the Mega Mega Cruiser, the bridge, yeah. <laughs> and it looks like it, yeah. it goes on and on, like it's a big long bridge uh-huh. that just keeps going. Yeah, and I well, seem to recall crazy. seeing something similar to that in the final set design that you see on mm. film, mm-hmm. where mm. it kind of goes on. Like there's another bridge next door. Yeah, isn't it wonderful that we we live in an age now where um, the 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 artist vision really can can fly in that way? Because when you think about the images that were were around of the mm. behind the scenes stuff in the seventies. Just getting the original Star Destroyer bridge completed was a challenge in terms of cost because it was a large set, and and so three quarters of that set was a painting, you know, and uh, and now it seems that obviously these films are doing so well that they've got the budget to to make great big enormous sets and what have you, but they can the way they can extend them digitally too into these just mm-hmm. huge vistas, it's kind of strange. It's almost like there was a patch in the eighties and nineties where things got small for a while because there was no way of doing it with computers and it was expensive to do and then you know you go about far enough that we just throw money at a movie and it would all be super epic and i feel like we're getting back to a time when things are super super epic and everything's getting ridiculously big because we've you know computers can take us there and this is one of those sets where i kind of think yeah it's great that this is so enormous i mean i always think about that um behind the scenes footage of george when he was talking to gavin bokeh on um i think it was phantom menace and he, and he was like, yeah, you know, I imagine this set being about a quarter of this size, Gav. Like you've kind of uh, talked about overkill, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and George had obviously looked at the model, he'd signed it off. Mm-hmm. He knew, he knew yeah, the size. Right. But then when he saw it, it was like, holy cow, look at the size <laughs> of this thing. You know? So big, he's going to have to add a couple more scenes. Yeah, right, and get just, twice as many extras. Yeah, <laughs> just to justify having it built. But, yeah. uh, you know, nowadays, you're so right, though. It's just... Things can go from concept right to the screen because a director mm. could say, make it just like this, and cost doesn't matter because they can they can do it digitally. I think there's there's also, like, you know, we, to, to 
pick up on what you were talking about with in terms of reiteration and the design process generally involving a lot of reiteration and now it's less and less so you know for certain things i think i think what wasn't necessarily kind of understood about this type of movie in the 70s was how many changes will happen to a design before it gets to the finish line just because of practicalities right you look at you look at ralph's concept works for the the stormtroopers and then the finished thing obviously doesn't look you know uh, exactly the same and those changes didn't come from them kind of going, we want to make it look different, mm-hmm. like completely. A lot of it was about, well, how are we going to get it done in the time that we've got? And, you know, what processes are we going to have to use to make that happen? And what concessions do we need to make? You know, and, and where should we let that show through? And where should we hide it? And all that kind of stuff. Whereas now it's like we get that whole process so well that um, because now, you know, there are so many science fiction movies made and so many big budget visual effects movies made that they understand that, okay we design this and then we let it go and then it's got to go through 18 pairs of hands before we see the finished thing so why Mm -hmm. have the designer work it to death when all these other people are going to make contributions too so it's like okay you've designed it enough now let's pass it on to the wardrobe department to do their thing or the model department to do their thing and you know so it's 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 a real team game in a way that it didn't used to be you know i think i think designers used to have to pick up the slack for a lot of departments before um before we had technology really to help us and and now you know you can kind of pass a file forward and you know uh it's much easier to share the design load with like you know four or five different departments or sometimes you don't even have to you can just Mm. create a design of something dump it into a 3d printer and bam you have a prop there it is (laughs) <laughs> spoken like a person who's never had to deal with nodes like, <laughs> why is it why is it printed it. like that that doesn't look anything like the file why does it look like spaghetti i've you know? not had to deal with anything so uh <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about snoke's uh snoke's boudoir as yeah. uh dj calls it um <laughs> what uh what do you make of this obviously uh, a call back to some designs of uh, the Emperor's throne room for Return of the Jedi that was supposed yeah. to be in an underground cave with flowing lava. Uh, you see a very similar sort of throne. Uh, what do you make yeah, of all this? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I loved how how bold they went with that. You know, it's kind of crazy. It's one of those things if you think about it for too long, it's like really like. <laughs> you know, it's like people used to joke about people going around polishing the Death Star floors all the time. It must have been a pain, you know. Maybe that's what the mouse droids are for. Yeah. With this, you think, like, who who ironed Snoke's curtains, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they are almost yeah. uh, perfect, like they were painted yeah. on almost. And they were they were totally going for a kind of being the merciless color for a while, weren't they, looking at this? Mm. Like ginormous, uh, ginormous colors and, and nice little Turkish slippers. Yeah, you know, so yeah. that's it's an interesting to. Uh, I really hope we get to see lots of behind the scenes footage on this scene because I'm really curious as to how that came together because it feels almost like something from the Lord of the Rings when you you read about it because obviously you have got Andy Circus as that connection but the fact that he was in costume and they had a stand in that was nearly the right size and all that kind of stuff you know I'm really interested in seeing how that you know what was shot and rather than what we saw you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and I'd l- I'd love to know what Andy was thinking. I hope I hope we get a deep dive on this one because I know right now you know there seems to be a need for uh, for the people behind uh, the Last Jedi to really explain the film a little bit because obviously a lot of people are are uh, fe- feeling mixed about it. Yeah. Um, but I hope I hope that 
pushes them into territory where it's like, well, look, we're just going to show you more and more of the process. Because that, for me, has always been one of the most exciting things about a new Star Wars film coming out is is getting to see all the behind-the-scenes stuff. You know, I mean, it has been since the making of Star Wars came out on VHS, you know, and I'm really hoping that we get some nice long documentaries for this. I hope we get, get to see a lot of the process because, uh, you know, it seems like a really nice team. I'd love to, you know, see a, a good long interview with Andy Serkis talking about what he felt about Snoke, even if it doesn't tell us any more about the character, but it tells us what, you know, where he was coming from. That'd be good. And, um, yeah, it would be interesting to, to, to know, you know, what the, what the, what the thing is with all the red, you know, because there's, there's, that's open to a lot of interpretation, but mm-hmm. it, it seemed to be really, really important in this movie. I mean, red dominates in this film in all the, you know, all the publicity material. And, yeah. I mean, it could just come down to they just like the color of it, and it yeah. seemed appropriate for the middle film. And well, yeah, I mean, right. it 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 does recur. Mm-hmm. You you see it obviously mm-hmm. bathing Snoke's throne room, but you also yeah. see it getting kicked up as the natural crystal surface mm-hmm. of crate. Yeah. And it's covered in mm-hmm. the white, and then it gets exposed with the red, which yeah. I which I really enjoy. I I, I really enjoy the sequence where the uh, walkers are firing down, and the you yeah. know that you see. The mm. um or no when the Tie Fighters are flying overhead and they're they're mm. raining down blaster bolts on the ski yeah. speeders and it's just kicking up the red. It's such just, a cool look. I like I like that scene, but there was only one thing about it I I, I would have changed, which was like what, the moment when the guy goes salt. You know, yeah. it was almost like this isn't Hoth, right? You know, this isn't Hoth. Uh-huh. Like it's it's not. No, this isn't snow again. We're we're being new and different. You know, and <laughs> I think. We could have just not had that and just make the topography different in some way. I would have liked to have seen maybe, you know, spikes sticking out the ground or some strange rock formation or tree formation or something scattered around just to give us more of a sense of this is, you know, not a big plain ice field. You know, I think that's that's that would have been visually, I think, more interesting than a big flat plain. What essentially looks identical to a snowfield, you know? Yeah, I thought it was cool just with the red underneath. That that was yeah, I, I, I felt like that. it made yeah. it kind of uh, you know more exotic and everything. It looked like a wound, didn't it? The trench looked yeah. like a wound. Yeah, it looked yeah. like the planet was bleeding. It was getting mm. cut open and it was bleeding. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was cool. Uh, <laughs> just you know, jumping around to different things that I'm seeing here in the book. Mm. Uh, there's a medical droid that walks around on the resistance ship. I haven't mm. heard anyone talk about this thing yet, but it shows up in a few shots. You'll see it. It's this white medical droid. Have, oh, yeah, yeah, the it? weird one. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of faceless almost. It's yeah, uh, kind of like yeah. if, if Apple made a droid, yeah. it would be this thing. It's nice to see that they used the, the Ralph's design for, for the medical bay and empire for Luke and use that as the medical kind of unit for Leia in this one. You see that little bit? It's on page 115. Oh. It's, it's, it's they literally just copied a, a design that Ralph came up with for it, there's an, an old painting he did of Luke recovering right. in the medical bay after his fight on the on the um, rebel frigate and there's a, like a unit at the end of the bed and they've literally just replicated that for the film and they've been really meticulous in trying to kind of recreate it so that's I love that whenever they just nail down a, a design that Ralph did and, and try not to go too far off track you know that was that was kind of cool backtracking just a tiny bit yeah I, I, do you think it was interesting the whole thing when they're talking about the there's a whole bit where it talks about the um the the coffin shaped pod that later that uh, Ray escapes in yes. from the Falcon and all that yes. and their their insistence on it looking like a coffin and 
you know, that, that felt like a real kind of Campbell thing, that whole idea of rebirth, you know, the idea that, you know, you have to kind of go from one life to another to become the kind of hero and to, to literally let the old self die and a new self arise from the ashes and stuff like that. And the way that's kind of that moment for Ray, you know, that, that, that turning point where she just puts herself in the belly of the beast and kind of goes, okay, I'm going to, I don't know where this is going to take me, but it's going to change everything, you know? And, and so for me, that that's kind of one of those things where you kind of think, yeah, that's a really kind of smart moment to do that, that most people aren't going to pick up on. But, you know, if you, if you dial into that, all that Campbell stuff, I think, I think having her in a in a coffin shaped pod is a cool idea, you know. Hmm. I'm sure there were designers going like, why why a coffin? Why is she going to die? Or, you know. But. And apparently, uh, it says written on there somewhere. It says property of Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, right. In uh, in uh, yeah, Corellian. Yeah, yeah. Why would it's Han put- want to put his name on anything with that ship? Didn't he? Make sure yeah, like the right. trans the transponder code was always fake, and he was a smuggler. I don't see yeah. Han Solo putting his name on anything with mm. the Falcon. But yeah, yeah. yeah as a matter of fact, they do call it here the Coffin Escaped Pod, the uh-huh. Coffin Escape Pod in C.S. Lewis's Paralandra. The main character yeah. travels mm-hmm. across space to Venus in a coffin. Yeah. Uh huh. It's very much like uh, John Carter, that kind of vibe. You know, the character thinks they've died and they've woken up somewhere else, but they haven't. Yeah, it's it's freaky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. So, I always like it. I like it when they when they reference pulp. It's it's. I'm always pleased about that. It's like, yeah, yeah. You should be reading a lot of the old science fiction because it's it's definitely part of the flavor. You know. And uh, I just love the visual of the Falcon coming out of hyperspace, <laughs> dropping off. The coffin escape pod, and then blasting it back into hyperspace. Yeah, all it's a the, wicked moment. Yeah, all all within about uh, two seconds. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it feels like see, a hand move. And then you see, I like how the Tie Fighters then scramble to go intercept the the escape pod. I, that's just a really mm. cool scene. Like, what the hell yeah. was that? <laughs> oh my yeah, god, it's, it's the Millennium Falcon. It's gone. <laughs> Why don't we track it through hyperspace? We can't. We we we're chasing these other guys over here. We can't. Yeah. We can't multitask. I'm surprised, I'm surprised that stuff doesn't happen more often. You know, a ship shows up, shoots the heck out of something, and then just vanishes straight away. Because that'd be really annoying the Empire, wouldn't it? Like, oh come on! <laughs> like, just keep turning up. Shoot, shoot the bridge, vanish. You know, shoot the bridge, vanish. Like, get lost. <laughs> well, that's why they have shields. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. why they have shields. Yeah. So uh, just flipping through some of this, uh, you know, just holler if there's anything mm. that kind of jumps out at you. I assume Rose's resistance ring is already being merchandised and prepared <laughs> for sale. So we can. It's all- cool. It's not like a kind of a nod to the old Book Rogers, Book Rogers code breaking rings. You know, like they had stuff like that, didn't they, back in the 40s? When, yeah. you know, something people don't always realize, I think, because we, we tend to think of merchandising as being such a thing from the modern age. And yet, back in the 40s, you know, kids were uh, were going out and getting uh, Book Rogers play sets and all the stuff that we get now, but slightly worse for you. You know, so you had little lead figurines. You could buy a pack of, like, Book Rogers lead figures and stuff like that. And one of the things that was really, really popular was these um, Book Rogers code rings where you span the dial and you got different pictures and stuff like that. And I think George had one of those, I think, as a kid. So that might be might be a reference to that. I don't know if they mention it in the book or not, but that's, that was the first thing I thought of was like, oh, Book Rogers Code Breaker, that's, that's kind of cool. Drink more Ovaltine. Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, drink I like more all Ovaltine. 
I like all this stuff with the, uh, you know, when they're, they're talking about um, uh, Canto Boy with the just their play on, on, on well, it's kind of like Ralph's early uh, concepts for Jabba's Sailboard. It's, it's, you know, it's got that about it. But what, what was interesting to me was, I don't know, when we when we first looked at shots of the, the trailer, and I know I was the first one going, <gasps> Tatooine, look, it's Tatooine's in the trailer. And everyone's like, oh, I don't know, maybe it's, you know, Geonosis or it's this or it's that. And um, but it turned out to be Canto, and it was. I remember thinking, how come there are no oceans in the, you know, from out, you know, from afar? And it looks like the 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 point is that this, that this ocean is basically man-made or alien-made. Oh, I um, see. Yeah. And, and so so it's literally like it's a desert planet that they've turned into this kind of ocean retreat in one place. So it's it's like kind of height of decadence, you know, they've kind of imported water or made, you know put water there in one place or taking the water from everywhere else and put it in one spot or something. But, um, I liked, I liked the look of Kanto. I don't understand what, you know, what, whatever is having a whole time with Kanto. I liked it, even though, you know, I felt like it was a bit of a break from things. It felt very Star Wars to me. And I think design wise, there was a lot to like in it. Uh, you know, you know, yeah, I loved, there's a uh, lot of cool aliens and speeders. Yeah. And, uh, mm. I liked the father's. I even liked, yeah. uh, you know, some of the, weird devices they have in the cantina itself and the uh-huh. uh, the the droid walking around the cantina serving drinks you see a few times the yeah the, that's that's very model on a rough concept very similar he did he did a few for bounty hunters that look like that yeah but, yeah i like all the the fact it feels like uh you know it feels like um Pots of grease and stuff, you know. And mm. So I love that feeling of the med. It's it's really really nice. I love some of the wide shots. Look gorgeous. My my only feeling about this is, that, you know, from seeing all the clips and stuff and looking at all the behind the scenes shots on online and stuff that leaked all the leaked pictures, was I really wanted to see a lot more of Canto. I liked it a lot. You know, I, I thought like well, it'd be really nice to explore the place in the same way that we explored Tatooine. But you kind of feel like you only really get kind of five five minutes out on the street, don't you? Well, that's you know. how they do it with the prequels. Yeah, or, I mean, the, with the yeah. sequels, they just, mm-hmm. they just really keep yeah. it locked in on things. Yeah. And, you know, they George would cut away to alcoves in the uh, cantina mm. or, or show reaction shots of aliens in Jabba's palace and stuff, and that's all. Yeah. that's all we really mm-hmm. needed. It just kind of let us mm-hmm. peek around in the corners and things like that. Here's you know, a, go that's on. a good. Sorry, Jimmy. I mean, I think uh, that's. I mean, that's a good observation. I mean, I kind of feel like the thing that for me is important about these moments in film is that feeling of immersion. Mm -hmm. And then that comes down to, well, how do you achieve that? Is you either, you know, it's not just about pointing a camera at a thing and locking onto it for ages. You know, it's about variety, moving around a place a lot. And like you say, reactions, feeling that you're really there and Mm -hmm. um, um, among people. But I I think this is such a quick segment that it was hard to really kind of make a strong connection to Kanto. You know, I'd like to feel the same way about Kanto as I do about Bespin and all these other planets, you know, but for me, it was so brief, you know, I didn't really kind of feel like I got hooked into it. But I like, I like the way they've played. I mean, basically a lot of the, the, the designs of the interiors of the, of the casino and stuff are definitely Ralph's earliest, um, concepts for Jabba's palace. So, which was much more expansive than the one in the movie. I mean, you kind of get the mm-hmm. feel of it from the, the entrance way, you know, but, but this is what, what what the arches mind. with that. Uh, it yeah. looks like some mm-hmm. weird alien alphabet, Making, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. I, I get that. I get that for sure. Hey, there's this one, this one alien character that I want to talk about, and you only see this guy briefly in the film. In the book, uh-huh. they call him the Pearl General Number Five. And <laughs> what is? It's he's really weird. It's this 
kind of. What page uh, are we talking to? Uh, this is page one twenty-seven. It's a uh, sort of a long-haired, older guy. You can't really see his face because he's wearing some breathing apparatus. Oh yeah, looks like yeah, yeah. Part of a stormtrooper helmet, mm. and then his body is really interesting because. The yeah, lower looks portion like- looks like FX7's body. Yeah. He yeah. has 21B's arm. It looks like he has <laughs> Vader's uh, chest plate, and mm. he's wrapped in a white cloth that mm. has uh, Imperial insignia on it. Uh, yeah. It's kind of designating him a Grand Admiral, I believe. Yeah. And, or Well, he's a general, according to this. But, mm. uh, you know, he's wearing the all white, so uh, like Krennic or what have you, or, or Thrawn. Um, mm. and you actually do see this guy briefly in the film. Really, he's he's in the stands watching the Fathier race. No way. Yeah, they cut to him. There's a Ro- Rose huh? voiceover about you know, this yeah, yeah. wanting mm-hmm. to stick her fist through the beautiful, horrible town or whatever she's. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you see this general there, but you don't really see all of his uh, his, his weird sort of uh, cybernetic parts. No. But there's a good picture of him in the visual mm. dictionary. Let's see what his name actually is, because he's on the very last page of the visual dictionary. Yeah, it's really interesting to look at. It's he's, kind of freaky, uh, isn't it? Colonel Guswan Askreath. Askreath. <laughs> he's Ask a, what? <laughs> he's a, he has a repurposed Imperial issue Stormtrooper breath mask, mm-hmm. um, refurbished 2-1-B medical droid limb, Customize FX8 trunk with hidden casters. Uh, so he just you know it doesn't you know it doesn't work about that what? design. He's supposed to be wealthy. Why is he using all these like you know rubbishy parts from from droids that the rebellion can afford? You would think you would think he'd be going for luxury. He'd be going for you know state of the art cybernetic implants, not kind of bits of old droid. Hmm. You know. So that, that for me is a bit that's kind of really like this guy's meant meant to be probably be a millionaire or the Star Wars equivalent of it, right? It, you know, I don't know. I mean, I suppose they're trying to kind of make that that connection between um, the profits of war, maybe you know, so something like that. Yeah, like, like maybe he's just, maybe he's a landmine manufacturer or something like that, you know. The photo so, in the book, or maybe he's just a guest. But the fo- mm. the photo in the book, he's not wearing imperial insignia, and he doesn't. He's not dressed right. in all white robes. He's he's dressed. Okay. Uh, but it does say he's a colonel. So, colonel. What? But it says colonel in quotation marks. So, mm. yeah, I like it. It's an interesting character, though. I like the idea that it's kind of there's not a lot of him left. That's quite. Now that would know. be a good action figure in my book. <laughs> that would be a cool one. What is it with the aversion to original era um, aliens, dude? I well, mean, even yeah. in the, even in this, you see like there's a concept piece on page one three one, and there's there's Twi'leks and Rodians and Warrens and uh, you know a little bit of everything. And I think there's room for all of that. I mean, the, even if it's just distant background, but they seem to be so averse to it. it it's odd. It I mean, is, uh, I, I, know, I know there's a scene that apparently a cut scene that some of this concept art is from where you get um, where there's a, like, uh, a massage parlor or like a sweat lodge or something. And there are all these there's like a there's a nearly Gamorrean. There's a nearly hut. Right. And, right. and, and you would think, well, the put, put, a hut, put a hut in there, you know. <laughs> I mean, like a lot of the iconography that's used inside this casino is taken from Jabba's palace and is still in Jabba's palace in some of the designs. 
So, you know, there's a connection between the huts, you know, visually and, the, and this place. So, like, for my money, it's like this is – of all places in the galaxy where you might find a hut, you would think that this would be definitely be up there. Mm-hmm. I mean, being as they, they, you know, run pod races and, you know, so that was one thing that really confused me was, like, why are they just – and I understand this whole thing about it makes the universe too small and all that, but it's like, come on, put some old, put some old school aliens in these movies. You know? Well, okay, the argument it makes the universe small, but it also yeah, makes but... the universe the universe. Yeah, you know? disconnected. It makes the same as any other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be like, hey, you know, I'm in, uh, I'm in uh, uh, Italy, you know, and I yeah. run into another. Uh-huh. You know, uh, 40, 48-year-old guy who's there with uh-huh. his family and stuff. I, yeah. I'd be, like, I'd be like, oh, wow, what what a small world we live in. I'm actually seeing another person who looks like me. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, yeah, you know. and I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is is that the, these guys, it, it, it's you know, it's filled with humans. It's filled with protocol droids. It's filled with auto units. Right, right. Like, what's wrong with it being the odd? I mean, like, not even one. I mean, I'm not picking up on anything. Anyway, looking at stuff that, that is new that I like, I do like the look of a lot of these these new droids. I like the the waiter droids. Some of the designs were really beautiful. They felt like luxury items. You know, they felt like kind of I don't know expensive cars or something. You know, yeah, the gold yeah. the gold trim and the just the finish was really nice. And well, speaking of old kind of, speaking of old aliens, I mean, what about mm. old droids? You know, I'm still kind yeah. of weirded out that the whole mm. idea of BB-8 was to make a improvement on r2d2 mm-hmm. i don't even think yeah. that's necessary and listen i love bb8 don't get me wrong mm-hmm. i mean i have enough room in my heart for both but it almost seems yeah. like you know the the old r2 units are even being pushed aside for something different um mm-hmm. hey, but back to the aliens real quick because i had a couple of things i wanted to say about them mm-hmm. before we we move on um you talk about the the big hut like creature he's not seen in the movie itself mm-hmm. it's part of a deleted scene where the, yeah. the father race through a, a spa so they're they're at the at the casino like you go mm-hmm. to most casinos they have that um right. you know and so there's a, a spa and bathhouse in uh, the town there and uh, so mm-hmm. the father's apparently crash through that and you see like that big hut like character etc mm-hmm. but thinking back to like established Star Wars aliens appearing in the sequel trilogy and why we haven't seen any. It got me thinking about the original trilogy. Obviously, mm. the big alien moment is in the Moss Eisley Cantina. Mm. You get to Empire Strikes Back, you don't see any of those recurring aliens at all. The only, mm. uh, you know, I think maybe there's a, a snaggletooth walking around Cloud City, but that would solely be in the background. You don't yeah. get any of the repeat aliens. You hardly get any aliens at all in Empire Strikes yeah. Back, really, when you think mm. about it. But then when they go back to Tatooine, we don't really see aliens from the Moss Eisley Cantina being repeated in Jabba's Palace so much outside of the Rodian and a Jawa. Or a couple of Jawas. But I don't think there are any other yeah. repeats. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. Bosk is in there. So you see um, somebody from Empire. There, you know, Bosk is definitely in Jabba's Palace. Is there a hammerhead in there? No, no hammerheads. No, no Thorian. Wow. No Thorian. Yeah. No, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. no Wolfman. No, uh, mm. yeah. no Bith. No ones. Bith. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they did eventually add the Bith with the special edition. 
They added the Bith musician. Yeah, yeah. They added the female Rodian. They added more Twi'leks. And then the special, special edition, they added a Sebulba guy walking around in there. You know. I, guess, I guess my my question would be if if ninety percent of your spaceships are going to be throwbacks, so you can have mm. something that looks ninety percent like the original X wings, Tie Fighters, Millennium Falcon, everything else. What is the problem with making visual nods in terms of? I really don't see what the problem is with it. I think it yeah, all it's going to do is add to that that feeling of I'm watching authentic Star Wars, which is clearly what they're in pursuit of. So to me, it just feels like somebody has a real aversion to it. It's like, do you know what I mean? Like, because it, it doesn't make sense to me in terms of logic. It's like, okay, I get that. It's the the, 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 the chip the, on the, the shoulder with Disney is is trying to you know trying to recreate Star Wars without George Lucas. I think that's what it comes down to. Is that they're trying think, to create their own yeah. Star Wars, and they look at things from the Lucas era and say, oh, well, you know, that's a George Lucas thing." I think George mm-hmm. had the best balance in the prequels, where he was introducing a lot of new stuff, but yet yeah. he still had the environments populated Little with nods. some of those yeah. familiar ones. Uh-huh. And so that's why it is but, important. I mean, there's plenty of ways. I mean, how you know, how, you know, like I like I have a say in it, but like like how I would approach it is just go for. Go for the same but different. You know, go for go for uh, go for elderly Rodians. Go for you right. know, go for go for young Ethorians. Go for skinny Gamorians or uh, fat Jowers or you know, like change them up however you want. You know, like but but there is there could be so much variety in the way those things look rather than just pulling a mask off the shelf, obviously, right. which is something they don't don't want to do. You know, there's still I think there's still room for that, you know, and I mean clearly they're they're open to it at certain moments because you look at things like um Rogue One and the fact that we've got Admiral Radis and, and all that, you know, you think like well he's the variants, yeah. He's you know, he's a variation but right. he's he's a, he's a familiar species. So why not have an but, eight foot tall Jawa wearing a rainbow <laughs> afro wig? Why not? Let's have it. You know what I mean? You just change it up a little bit, at least. You know, like if they're, if they're bothered about making it new, you know, it's like, well, okay, do it old and new. You know, mix it up. I would anyway. I think that would be nice. Yeah. I think fans would like it too. You know, I mean, I, I know there's the certain element of wanting to avoid fan service too. You know, wanting to kind of uh, impo- be impartial and look at these things in reality and kind of say what really, you know, what really sets each movie apart and you know. Um, trying to be realistic about that rather than just to appeal to fans. But um, at the same time, I think there's something to be said for that stuff. I mean, I'd, I'd drop in all kinds of nods if it was up to me. I'd put them, I'd have them eating pliffs somewhere, you know, <laughs> because fans <laughs> get a kick out of it. You know, it's like, why not if you own all that stuff? But it almost feels like they don't own all that stuff. You know, it almost feels like we can't touch that. Yeah. It's not just that they that they aren't touching it. It's like It's like they can't. Which makes no sense at all because it all belongs to them, you know. But that's the way it feels mm-hmm. because the aversion seems to be so pronounced, you know. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'd no, love those just little really. moments of oh, look, there's like a there's like a wealthy Gamorian in the background. That's weird, you know. Or uh, right, yeah, you know, it yeah. would almost be odder because it's familiar but changed, you know. Because the only Gamorians we've seen are big, you know, big bodyguard yeah. thugs, mm-hmm. and uh, it, yeah, it'd be interesting to see one wearing a tux with a monocle or something. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, okay, old ship designs, what about the newer ship designs? Like, Uh I'm flipping through pages of the book. Obviously, the A-Wing went through a little bit of revision, Mm -hmm. 
But uh, the bombers, the resistance bombers, are really the the new fighters that we see in this mm. uh, film. It, it's in, in many ways they're they're very much uh, sort of like a, a symbol of this film. The, the bombers, you know, there's always some yeah. sort of Star Wars, uh, uh, you know, starfighter that that always kind of is the uh, it sort of uh, sums up the movie a little bit, and this one kind of sums up. Uh, the, yeah. I mean, I, I thought I thought they were really. I mean, you know, I love that opening uh, scene, and I like the bombers, and um, I was okay with the the whole kind of uh, the way that scene played out. Felt perfect to me, and I like the. You know, you can over question this stuff, can't you? But they could just kind of come out of the blue, and they clearly go at a snail's pace, which is kind of is not really great ideal for a thing that's full of bombs, is it? You know. Just <laughs> go really, really slow through this place where people might blow us up. You know, you kind of hope that bombers maybe would be a bit quicker than that. <laughs> yeah, I just assume but, that the speed we're seeing them at, is, it's just for storytelling purposes yeah, and not necessarily, is, you know. Obviously, yeah. And I like that. And uh, there's something nice, like, visually about them kind of dropping out, like, down into frame the way they did. And that whole kind of, you know, vertical... Um, approach to that whole scene you know you felt like you were really kind of dealing in a weird dimension because all of a sudden you know it's all about a drop you know so like everything's kind of upside down and it, it gave them an excuse to kind of do interesting things with the camera like lie flat in the back looking up and 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 point down at the floor so you had a lot of variety in the way it was shot and stuff just as a result of the way the bombers were designed you know and they could have they could have gone for something super traditional and just had a a huge bomb bay door full of bombs and and designed it the way it would probably be designed in the real world um, because for practical reasons you don't want the bombs all dropping on top of each other. Um, but visually, yeah, I love the look of it and and I, I love that whole scene with the way that um, that Rose's sister kind of fell through the bombs. It was really dramatic and yeah, I love the look of that shit. It felt super real and it's one of the one of those sets where I went, oh, nice. You know, because I know, I know they at the store it mentions in this book that they were talking about doing, uh, I think something like 162 sets or something like that, like a heap mm-hmm. of sets. I think it ended up being a little less than that, like 130 or something. But um, but sometimes it just really is no substitute for making a thing. It just looks so so cool. And uh, that was this was one of my favourite sets in the whole whole movie. So I, I think. There's a lot of design work went into that bomber that you, that looks effortless because we just kind of ignore it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but uh, you know I think it was uh, probably a really difficult ship to design interior. The in, you know the interior felt like something really familiar, even though uh, it isn't. It's something really new, and uh, it definitely felt like an old fashioned like World War Two bomber or oh, something. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that. I love that ship design. I liked it a lot. With the and, ball and turret yeah, underneath and everything. Yeah. Was, uh, when I saw it, it was graphically, I remember seeing it, his picture just kind of going, oh, it kind of looks like half a medical frigate or something, uh, you know, just kind of cut in half. It felt front heavy. Yes. And then, But then, like, the way it moved, it totally worked. You know, you just kind of felt, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so well, you like, realize that whole hmm. uh, yeah. that whole portion underneath, it's it's almost like um, an artillery clip in a, a, a gun or yeah. something, you know, yeah. the thing that yeah, holds yeah. all the bombs. Exactly. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's like like a like a bullet all sitting in a chamber or something. So that's yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. the signature starfighter of this film. But uh, mm. another uh, ship that gets a lot of screen time are these resistance transports, which yeah. uh, are basically space buses. Apparently, mm. I mean, you know, it's yeah. like 
uh, you almost feel like uh, you could just pull on the cord and <laughs> it'll pull over at the next stop uh, with yeah. some big windows. I Something I've been trying to do is figure out, because I'm like really sort of nitpicky about numbers and things. I, I'm right. trying to figure out how many members of the resistance actually survived at the end. So I was like, well, how many yeah. can they fit on those transports? And, mm. and they had 30 of those transports. And it looks like you could put about 20 people on each transport. Right. So, um, mm. on, you know, I mean, I guess you could fit more in there if you really jammed them in. But at least the mm. one we see that pose on with Leia mm. looks mm-hmm. like maybe there's 15 to 20 people on there. Mm. So, like, how many of those transports got destroyed by the First Order as they were approaching the uh, planet? I mm. mean, how many Resistance soldiers actually made it to the planet? Just a mere handful to begin with. Yeah, yeah. That whole kind of numbers game really kind of threw me, I think, watching this film. I was like, wait, how many? Like, you know, I felt like that number diminished real fast. Real fast. It, it felt like... Uh, oh, we're dealing with a rebellion kind of now. And the fact that they start to use that kind of language too made, made me start to think of it that way. You know, so I was think I was picturing a, a, a ragtag fleet and then kind of realizing, oh, there's like four ships left. Oh, uh, okay. Right. Yeah. You know, okay, four I'm cool with that, but when, like when did 12 that people, and... 12 people on each ship. It's like, yeah, oh my yeah, God, yeah. there's only 48 of us. All right, mm. well, we have about 13 of these ski speeders, so yeah. let's load them up. Uh-huh. And then yeah. those all get destroyed with the pilots, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Something I wanted to ask you about was that sequence when BB-8 hot wires the Imperial Walker, uh, the Scout Walker. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, yeah. and it, it, it suddenly becomes a convertible. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah. Wait, what? The top suddenly goes off of it. I didn't realize that um, happened, you know. It was almost like a... One of yeah. those funny cars or whatever, but um, I, I couldn't figure out how what the hell happened there. But apparently, mm. the the head of that walker was uh, hooked up to a bunch of uh, tubes and and cables and everything, mm-hmm. and it was uh, getting uh, some maintenance done on it. And that's made right. a little bit more clearly here when you look at the uh, the art of book. And then, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, after I got the book, I was able to go and watch the movie again and watch that sequence really closely and go, oh, I see it. It's yeah. That's how that thing came off of there. Yeah, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Like the whole top bit is totally unneeded if you've got a BB-8 unit, you know. Yeah, right. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's just fun, isn't it? It's just fun. That's they're, fun. They're just yeah. thinking that'll be, that'll be a laugh for kids and, you know, maybe it's something you can play within a game or, you know, it's just an entertaining idea. It's a fun little moment. I mean, the idea of BB-8 just kind of these giant legs. I mean, I've long thought it would be cool to see a, a binary load lifter in it. And in my mind, my version of BB of a load lifter would have been um, like a like a the Star Wars equivalent of a, a what do they call them? A, like a power suit, like a power loader from Aliens. Mm. The other thing that that Ripley gets in to beat the the Alien Queen, and uh, I always imagine something like that, but that takes takes an R2 unit. So that an R2 unit could be this ginormous thing that, you know, it, it's just going it, to, its brain steps into this power suit that makes it like this big thing that can lift things. Because I always thought that that interaction between kind of like an R2, R2-D2 and mm-hmm. 3PO would be really funny if he's suddenly like twice the size of 3PO, you know. <laughs> it could just be, it yeah. could knock him over and, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Knock him around. And I thought that, that this kind of works for the same reason. It's like this tiny little thing, but all of a sudden it's got these enormous legs, you know. So, yeah, remember yeah. that uh, that bounty hunter in the Clone Wars? He's a real little guy, but he was in this big giant suit of uh, 
Like, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah, a yeah. droid. It was almost like he would go in the head of the droid and. Wasn't that the Kurosawa the app? Like the yes. Like yeah. Seven app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I mean, you know, with these movies, it's, you, you want those things, don't you? You want a bit silly. You want a bit of fun in there. It's funny, really, because like, we all get so serious about different aspects of these movies. But in the end, it's if, the, if it wasn't totally stupid at some point, we'd be so annoyed by the movie. You know, we need, we need a certain percentage of silly in these films, don't mm. you? Where it's just not really a Star Wars film. Right. So Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. There has to be. Uh, it, it can't all be stuff to fill mm. up a page on Wikipedia. Yeah, you know there has yeah. to be just some things that you you surrender yourself to and mm. admire the way the filmmaking medium keeps getting pushed forward by these films. Yeah, the only thing I felt about that scene was that it felt very linear. You know, so it was the, it was the only time in the whole movie where you know where I went, oh, this feels very blue screeny. You know, you felt like Rose and Finn were kind of standing against a green screen and I everything get that, else. And like, yeah. all, all hell was breaking out around them. And it, it was almost like one of these joke, you know, green screen moments you get on a on a TV show that's mm. kind of taking a mickey where, uh, <laughs> you know, they're just standing around and next wings are crashing everywhere and tie right. fighters are blowing up and they're just kind of walking through the middle of it all and miraculously getting missed by everything, you know. <laughs> so right. so it, was, it was a bit it was a bit of that in a couple of places. It felt like, like it was uh, uh, shot in a studio. I, I get it. Um, <laughs> you know, and the first time we saw it, Sheldon Norton said to me, he's like, uh, oh, those those green scene moments were pretty shocking. How noticeable <laughs> it was! And I was like, I don't even know what the hell he's talking about. But then right. I, I did uh-huh. notice as Finn was running over to Rose after they uh-huh. collided with each other in the ski speeders. I was like, boy, oh boy, looks uh-huh. like he's about ready to give a weather report and have the map suddenly show up behind him. You know, it was that yeah. kind of green screen. Well, it- it wasn't for me. It wasn't so much like the technical kind of flaws or anything like that. Just subjectively, it was like, you know, the actor's not flinching, you know, and everything's yeah. blowing up everywhere. It's like, whoa, you know, it's like Apocalypse Now or something. The helicopters all crashing and blowing up and everything, and it's just like, hey, Rose, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, then, I mean- you know. I bet there were kids in that theater just losing it, and that was probably their favorite scene. You know. Sure. So. Mm. Well, there's a lot of good things to be said about that final scene there on crate with the Imperial Walkers, uh, mm-hmm. you know, versus Luke Skywalker. Um, the ski yeah. speeders are cool. While you and me, we definitely agree, we would have liked to see some some more of that sort of battle choreography going on that uh, you know Star Wars yeah. is most famous for. But uh, mm-hmm. it was a pretty bleak scene there for the Resistance, I guess, and. Um, yeah. You know, I guess for them it was probably about you know their focus was probably all about getting you know let's just get to Luke yeah yeah you know like that's really the important moment for this mm. this beat in the movie isn't it it's like let's just get to Luke but <clears throat> what's nice here is that there are a lot of scenes where again I'm looking at it kind of going oh we should seen that you know where you're looking at the resistance um, uh, speeders all their hangar bay getting uncovered and uh, prepared for for battle and it would have been fun to see a little bit more of that before they kind of went flying out of the the window and uh you know just just, uh-huh. just you know this, this is my breathing room yeah this is my first you know um feeling from this movie right from day one was you know so full of stuff but i wanted to spend more time and get to know certain places more and this was this base i really wanted us to get the measure of it you know like in in the hoth base you kind of feel like you really you know have a sense of the architecture there's there's you know there's the, the there's where the control room is, and this is where all the ships are, and you know, and I wanted a bit more of that of 
of inside this place because our understanding of it right now is is um you now a console where luke comes out and sits with leia you know that's pretty much that's pretty much what we really got to see apart from we know that there's a hole at the back that takes you out of the building and um you know somewhere upstairs or you know upwards is another floor full of speeders so and you but, have that you know. that control tower room yeah. where they can observe things Mm, I loved it from the outside. It looked great. You know, I really like the look of it. Uh, but I just wanted to see a lot more of it. It would have been really cool. Now, the ski but, speeder yeah. is something that looks like it actually did go through a little bit of evolution. We see some mm. different versions of it, which yeah. is a rarity for this book. A lot of the images mm. we're seeing are very close to the final images we see on screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a lot of stuff in this book. But the ski speeders, there's two very distinctly different looking versions of the ski speeder as opposed to the one we see in the final film. One is uh, mm. kind of like a, a, a two-bladed ski thing. <laughs> Hard for yeah, me to describe. Yeah. The other one reminds mm. me of a stap from episode one. Oh, but, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but mm. a, a little more... Uh, be a bit it, tricky to get on. I guess, I guess the I guess the chair flies up or something. Probably, you know. <laughs> See, but I mean, you're, I, I you're thinking it, like Ralph and Joe right now. How do you how do you get on this thing? <laughs> how do you get on it? Yeah, but the I mean, I I love some of the paintings that they did for this are wonderful. I mean, there's a lot of um, you know, cool kind of photo bash stuff with uh, the inside inside the 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 old base. And it's all rusted out and there's dust everywhere and all that. And that's just totally up my street. I love it once they start getting really kind of dog-eared. You know, and I love all that. That looks fantastic. And uh, they've almost got like a launch pad that looks like the launch pad from the Battlestar Galactica with the Colonial Vipers where they get they get shot down a line of stuff because the the the, the door is shaped like the speeder. So it can kind of zoom oh. through it, you know. Another one on, I think it's 225. Yeah, we don't, we don't really cool. see that in the film. We just see the speeders emerge mm. from within the base. Yeah. And uh, they're shooting out from up high. But uh, I love oh, that yeah, up. I do see that very much like Battlestar, the old mm. school Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Buck Rogers also did a similar thing, didn't they? When they were launching mm-hmm. fighters, they would yeah, blast yeah. down a tunnel. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the Buck Rogers ships and the Battlestar Galactica ships of the 70s both had the same sort of control yoke that they mm-hmm. used. With yeah. Because the, they had, like, yeah. three buttons. One was, like, thrust, mm-hmm. one was fire, and the other one was oh, yeah. probably... Uh, they they may have been the same controllers because yeah. it was a lot of stuff was used the same. was the same it, producer, right? It was Glenn yeah, Larson, Glenn, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and loads of Ralph's old designs from... from uh, 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 Battlestar ended up on book, you know, there's uh-huh. heaps of that. Did, and he Ralph, molded, did Ralph actually work on Buck Rogers or was it just his leftovers? He, he didn't. No, they just used a lot of the concepts that he did for, for Battlestar because they had so many. I mean, they only needed like a handful of fighters. And so, right. but it's strange that the way they picked stuff up because Ralph did a lot of stuff for um, uh, Doug Trumbull and he, he, he did a bunch of stuff for uh, uh, like, or, or, like um, what do you call it? Theme parks and stuff. Um, many of which didn't, take off enormously and, and would end up shooting down. And so Universal had a bunch of um, old ships and stuff that Ralph designed for uh, various different theme park projects, and, and they had them in storage, and so they will those out occasionally for background spaceship props in certain episodes. There's an episode called The Olympiads that has that I was like, wait, that's a concept Ralph did for, for this theme park, and it was like, there it was. They actually just used the old the old ship as a, as a prop, you know. So, yeah, the... <laughs> They'll, they'll use everything they can. The thing that was strange to me about these fighters is, to me, they're like, uh, like seventy percent B wing. You know, 
Yes. Like it looks just like a B-Wing. And it is, you know, I would have liked him to kind of go for some of the order designs that they did. I feel like this was a bit a bit on the nose, you know. I like, and some of these designs are lovely and they're different and they've got the same essence, but they're not quite so literal, you know. Apparently, but I, love the, I love the banged up quality. They're fantastic. I like that they're all kind of, you know, beaten. And rust buckets right. and Paul mm. sticks his foot through the bottom of it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. These designs are gorgeous. There's a lot of really gorgeous designs in You brought up the B-Wing. Apparently, the B-Wing cockpit design came into play uh, <laughs> when they were creating the Resistance shuttle that Finn mm. and Rose take to Canto Bite. Apparently, that is a, a repurposed B-Wing cockpit. That right. makes up their shuttle. Um, I'm trying to think, actually it? find it. Yeah, it's, it's Leia's shuttle from Force Awakens, isn't it? It's that one. It's the one that's it's like a, a rescue eagle from Space 1999. Right, but stripes. it doesn't have the middle part of it. It just has no. the... Uh, yeah, just the end of it, yeah. Like the bookends. Yeah. Um, mm. Transport pod. Uh, where yeah. did I read that, though? The book I'm looking at doesn't mention that. But uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah, it sure does. Rose's shuttle is the modified control pod of a resistance transport, which began mm. life as a B-Wing mm. Mark II cockpit. Cool. So there, so, so it was a B-Wing cockpit. There. What a lot of people don't realize when they look at the Falcon is that the cockpit was originally designed to spin. You know, like people, you know, you can see that in the in the B wings and stuff that it's clearly it's a it's a cockpit that's designed to rotate. Right. But the but the but the original Falcon, the, the idea was that the back of the ship would spin. So as, as as it's going, you know, on its edge, they'd still be upright. Right. You know, and uh, but obviously they didn't go there because otherwise, when you watch the movies, you know, the background door, you'd see the interior of the Falcon spinning around all over the place. Right. But uh, but it could have been cool. I think it's, it's well, kind of interesting. But it was they, all kinds of problems, isn't it? You know? <laughs> <laughs> they did. Uh, they did reuse that concept for the B wing, as, as you mm. said, and and I think Dash Rendar's Outrider also right. featured a similar yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. It would have been a pain when you think about it like in the movie wouldn't it like where like luke could come into the cockpit and it's the wrong way around so he's like he's standing on the ceiling or whatever like wait wait i'll catch you in a minute it'd be like it'd be like those those the uh, rotating doors wouldn't it but <laughs> i could worse. never figure out the gravity that was happening in the uh, millennium falcon oh, the, the, oh, the, the gun turret the gun turret well i was I know, man. as a kid i was just i had the hardest time wrapping my head around i, I still don't get it i'm still like right. wait what um, okay, so somehow there's like a null gravity as you go up or something. Yeah, and, yeah, the gravity uh, changes and you could just walk uh, right through it. I remember, it's not I disorienting was, at all. I remember chatting to uh, um, a Lorne Peterson about the, the Falcon and um, uh, John Bird. We were chat, chatting about the, the original Falcon designs and, and they were both laughing at, at Ralph basically kind of creating problems for them because um you know I, I think this is where i get my nitpickiness from is it's it's really ralph's fault i'm gonna blame him but the, there's, a, there's a sorry ralph but but the they they were talking about the fact that they built these models and everything and ralph just suddenly went well you know and bearing in mind this is a designer who used to work for boeing right so it was lockheed and nasa and all these different so he's coming at it from a super practical standpoint and that's what i tend to do you know and 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 he he just said to him well that looks nice but um you know, uh, once you've got the decking and then there's the there's the water and there's the this and the that, they've got like about an inch to stand in. So it's not deep <laughs> enough. It's not deep enough. So they had a real problem with the depth of the Falcon. It was like it needs to be deeper. There's not enough room, you know. Oh, I and, hate when uh, that happens. <laughs> but he was, he was right. You know, it's right. When you look at it, you kind of go, yeah, it's not deep enough from the outside. But you just go with it, don't you? 
So funny. Well, hey, that was a pretty good uh, rip through this book, The Art of the Last Jedi, which is a book I strongly recommend, as I do with any art of Star Wars books. This is a good one. Yeah, it's especially a good one. There's a lot of really beautiful art in here, you know, and uh, there's a, you know, the one thing I really like about this is it gives you a glimpse into the movie we didn't get as well as the movie we did get. You know, it's it's very varied. It feels kind of 50-50 to me. Like, you know, at least half of it, you kind of feel like, yeah, that isn't anything like what we had in the movie, you know. So and there was a bit of that in The Force Awakens 1 too, wasn't there, with all the kind of going into the sunken Death Star and on a water planet and all that, you know. Yeah, I but, think there was more experimentation mm. in the conceptual stage when it came to mm. the, the the Force Awakens. But, I mean, that should be expected. It was the first mm. episode of a new trilogy. Yeah. Obviously, The Last Jedi uh, picks up those pieces and... Uh, picks up that ball and runs with it so uh but yeah great conversation paul um very very uh, appreciated for you to take your time and uh, expertise and help us uh, analyze all this cool concept Mm -hmm. artwork and uh how can people get a hold of you oh uh, as usual through um influences itself just go track us down on on uh rebels radio's influences or um you can you can find me on twitter um at paul rmq as in ralph mccurry and uh that's the the easiest place to find me you can i'm going to be posting a lot more artwork um I'm, i've just started to post artwork from a game that i'm working on at the moment called conflux mm-hmm. that uh has got a lot of uh a lot of Star Wars influences in there, as you'd expect from me. So there's a little bit of Star Wars in there, a bit of Miyazaki, a bit of Mobius, all, all the cool stuff all getting mixed together in this uh, this new project. It's really interesting. I think if, you, if, you, uh, if you're if you a fan of Star Wars, you'll probably dig it. Um, but um, I have to, before we scoot, Jimmy, I have to say, you know, I always feel whenever we talk about these art books, I always feel negligent by not talking about the artists. But there are so many on this project. You know, there's just artist after artist after artist. When you look back at the old art of books you know you're talking about maybe five or six people as right. key arts and now there are just dozens and dozens of people you know yeah it seems like so, a revolving sorry. door going on throughout the entire process too yeah so sorry to any artists that might be listening in that i'm not uh name checking you properly because there's some really beautiful work in here and i think all these artists deserve to be mentioned but uh, uh who has the time <laughs> we, we take the entire yes. show so thank you to every everybody. star wars artist that yeah, worked on thanks. the last jedi <laughs> thanks guys amazing work it amazing work so thank you again, Paul, uh, for everyone listening to the show. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in and checking out Star Wars Influences with us. If you want to hear more Rebel Force Radio, get all access to RFR on Patreon. And you'll never miss an episode of our bonus content. We have a bunch of shows. RFR Rush Hour, RFR Rewind, and RFR Q&A. We just are dropping a new episode of RFR Q&A this week. Plus, we have uh, exclusive giveaways, early access to RFR events, if we ever have any more of them, and much more. <laughs> hey, it's a lot I, of work, I, pal. It's a lot yeah, of work. Dude, I know I'm biased, but I think it's worth it just for the rush hour because there's, there's nothing like... I mean, it's really fun. It's a really fun show because you're not always talking about Star Wars. You know, it's, there's a lot of variety in there, but it's it's just it's just sort of a little glimpse into your life, really, isn't it? So it's fun to listen to Jason in the car and... You know, I'm always expecting him to have an accident on the way home. You know. Oh, that would be the ultimate <laughs> episode, wouldn't it? That would be uh, that probably yeah. get us a lot of hits for that one. You'd have to insist on carrying on talking about Star Wars as he's getting taken into hospital and wake him up. <laughs> we could just you know. keep doing updates. Uh, Jason in the hospital checking in from RFR rush hour to uh, RFR emergency room. You know, it's yeah. our it'll be our newest show. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll have RFR intensive care. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, RFR Rush Hour, we, 
We, we ride shotgun with Jason Swank on his way home and talk about Star Wars, etc. So uh, you never know what will happen on that show. You need, you need to you need to get Billy Mack a show of his own, I think, because that, his Lando impersonation is getting insane. You need, you, need, you, need, you need like a midnight with Lando show or something. Yeah, yeah. Just Billy Mack. Lando taking calls. We could have Lobot. Yeah. Lobot could oh, screen the calls. Do it, dude. You should at least do a one-off. That'd be so so much fun. Sometimes it's so close, man. Yeah. I know so when, when he's on, when he's really locked yeah. in. And, it is yeah. so on the nose. Amazing. <laughs> If you uh, have any uh, questions, comments, insights, or observations you'd like to lay on me and Paul, send us an email, show at rebelforceradio.com, and put Star Wars influences in the subject line, or leave us a mm. voicemail at 708-320-1737. That's 708-320-1RFR. Paul. I'd like to encourage any listeners that are out there that are or or have an artist in their life who want to talk about art in general, or their own artwork or concept art or anything like that please feel free to reach out via um, uh, influences and, and chat to me if you've got any questions that aren't really to do with stores or just about the general kind of life of a contact artist or you know uh, I, there are a few people I know who've reached out to me you know regarding the kids and, and what kind of training to get the kids and stuff like that so feel free to just reach out for a chat if you've got any questions if it can be any help I'm, I'm, I'm here alright Relationship advice. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I don't know about that. Recipes. <laughs> recipes, yeah. Uh, buy one pot noodle, add kettle. And Paul will also read your horoscope for you, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, when you've had somebody wonderful like Ralph in your life and, and other artists who've, you know, been in enormous influence and stuff like that, I really believe in paying it forward. So if there's, if there's anybody out there who just wants to talk about I'm here. All, All right. right. Paul Bateman, artist for hire. Yes. Art- Artist with an open ear, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash rebelforceradio, and visit rebelforceradio.com for episodes, news, and merch. Subscribe and review Rebel Force Radio on iTunes. As always, make it good. And uh, find RFR at WGM Plus, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, just about anywhere you find those crazy podcasts. Paul, thank you so much. I uh, hope to catch up thank with you, you again next month. So uh, be thinking about cool. what you want to be talking about. Uh, well, I, have a, I have a list. Okay, great, great. This we're is, good. See, we're, we're, com- we're rolling into this new year, and, and we're refreshed. Uh, we are aroused, and we are ready to, <laughs> to entertain you. Uh, that, was, so, that was last week. You're fine. <laughs> that was last week. Yeah, you can't. Once a month is all. All right. <laughs> so for uh, Rebel Force Radio, Star Wars Influences, and Paul Bateman, I'm Jimmy Mack. <laughs> and remember... The Force will be with you. Always. Always.